Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Long before my guest on today's show was cast as Jamie Foxx's father, on the new Netflix series Dad Stop Embarrassing Me. They were sharing the screen in scenes like this one-night stand sketch from In Living Color. Oh my God! I think I just saw a skint back mongoose or something! This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from the Daily Beast, and that was Jamie Foxx with my guest today, David Allen Greer in one of their many classic appearances together on In Living Color. Now, thanks to his giant white beard, David is playing Jamie's father on the new Netflix sitcom, Dad Stop Embarrassing Me. And they haven't skipped a beat. On this episode, we get into those early days at In Living Color and the many decisions and regrets of David's long comedy career, including turning down Ace Ventura, saying no to SNL, and landing what he considers the best role he's ever had on The Carmichael Show. This was just an all-around hilarious and enlightening conversation, so let's get to it. Here's me with the comedy legend himself, David Allen Greer. Well, thanks for doing this. I think when I found out that you were playing Jamie Foxx's father on this show, I think as, as most people probably did, I immediately Googled your respective ages and realize that you're only 11 years older than him. How did, how did this happen? It is a sitcom. I am, I am surprised how people all of a sudden are like, <laughs> you know, the uh, social media investigators, this is not possible. Yeah, we, just... <laughs> no, this is uh, going to, there's probably going to be a documentary. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm, young, I'm older than Estelle. Getty, I think, who played the oldest. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, mom. That was another. That was another one that confounded people, though. Did it though? I mean, <laughs> I threw it in the moment, and I would say, if that's what you're thinking about, then we have failed. Truly, <laughs> if you're like the third episode, going, this is physiologically impossible. I can't enjoy the show. There's some things wrong. It, it must be that luxurious beard of yours that really landed it's you the true. role. It's true. You know, Jamie is so generous. He said, you don't have to keep the beard. And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, so did this, you obviously known Jamie for forever. Um, so is that how this, uh, this project came to you uh, through him? 
Well, you know, like a year ago, I was in New York and I was uh, doing a revival of a soldier's play on Broadway. Roundabout. Congrats on the Tony nomination, by the yeah, way. man, thank you. But I got a call. It was, a, it was first it was a text from my agent. And she said, you know, I spoke with Jamie Foxx's lawyer and he wants to know, would you be open to speaking with him about <laughs> something? And I'm like, this is it. <laughs> I knew if I waited long enough, it's probably going to be Django 2. You know, we're going to be hardened, <laughs> grizzled desk sergeant. He's going to be a detective. It is Oscar time. I know. Oh, yes. Oh. Yes. So, yeah. So, you know, we finally talk on the phone and it's not that at all. He said, you know, I'm doing the sitcom. And I'm like, what? What's going on? <laughs> and yeah, man. And so he ran it by me. And he also, we also talked about the character. He said, you know, it's written as, you know, you're my dad. I mean, did, you, did I offend you? And I was like, no. You would have offended, offended me had you not called that. Would, but, you know, he said, we can change it. We can do and that, this and that. And uh, I had no problem with it because, like I said, it's, it's, it's TV, man. Come on. Yeah, yeah. It's a comedy. <laughs> and um, he said the real words, he said, man, I need you to do this show. So That's good to hear. Yeah, man, it is. I never hear that. I hear... Can't believe we got you. We fit you in here. We squeeze you in. We have a role, a little role. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. A whole lot of maybe. I think, (laughs) no, Jamie was, and he said, because I know with us together, we can take this to the uh, the next level. And um, I said, man, let's go. Let's do it. Just, when did you when did you shoot this show? Well, that's the sticky part. We started last summer. I mean, it was the first job I did outside of my house. I did nothing but Zoom. And it was really a testament to Netflix protocol. We're a long way from the vaccine. Um, also, it was right in town. I live like 15 minutes away. That was important. A block away from where we shot Living Color, by the way. Um, all these things, uh, played a part to assuage me because like most of us, I'm trying not to be dead, trying to be alive. And it was cool. The first few days were really kind of sketchy because we, you know, everybody came in their gloves, goggles, mask, <laughs> shield. You know, most of it was like... A little scary. What do you say? Action. You know, a lot of Exactly. A lot of that. And uh, we worked through, we relaxed. And once the bubble was established and, you know, we trusted a little bit more, we we worked around it. Yeah. I mean, I know that live audiences are a big part of this type of multicam sitcom, but I assume you didn't have a, a full-on live audience. So how, what was that like for you to to not have that, those it people was weird. there? Like, even when you don't have an audience, you have people there. You have all the writers are usually sitting there. Then you have all, everyone is there. So it becomes a small audience. All that was erased because of protocol. You didn't have managers, everybody who's coming to laugh at their one joke or, you know, their one scene. Um, That was eerie, but it also made me feel safe and protected because that's the way we got to work right now. And what it eliminated is dispelling that energy 
entertaining those people watching you while you work. So it was just us. And it allowed it, I, I felt it allowed us more mobility, meaning if we got to a sweet spot in, the, in a scene and we wanted to expand it or improv or push it out, we did it right there. We didn't have to wait. We didn't have to uh, give candy bars to the audience, you know, the, 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 a warm up guy, none of that stuff. So it was, it, it allowed us to have a more concentrated work process, which I appreciated. Um, talking about Jamie Foxx, you know, he's someone who, as we said, you've known from back in, in Living Color days. You were there from the beginning of that show. He came on in season three. What were you, do you remember sort of the first time you met him, what your first Im- impressions of him were? Well, when I first saw Jamie, uh, was in a club. Uh, Living Color was on. He was a young comic, uh, new comic who had come on. And, and you know, back in the day, as, uh, as it is now, or was before the pandemic, uh, we'd go around town. I used to do four or five rooms a night, any place that had an audience just to work out real. He was one of those guys there. And that's the first time I took notice of him. This guy was funny. Who is he? And so I watched him, you know, and Jamie and I talked a lot back then. He told me a lot about his life, about his family, about upbringing and his classical music training and playing in the church and how he changed his name, why all of these things. So I really got to know him. And um, it was a real joy. But the turning point for Jamie on the show is when he did Wanda. (laughs) We called her the ugly girl. And I remember the first time we watched in a dress rehearsal, Jamie do this show, and he just destroyed. And from that moment on, he was gone. Man. I mean, he was just out there. So it was cool. And I've enjoyed When I say I enjoy him is I'm a fan of Jamie's. I love watching friends and people I know uh, do good work. It inspires me to do better. And I like everybody else. I get my popcorn. I go to the theater. I used to uh, turn on the television and I want to be taken away. I want to be carried away by your performance. And he has done that. So it's been a joy watching his career develop. Was there any like uh, was there any weird vibes in terms of him coming in as this young, new, hot guy on the show when you were, you know, had been there a couple of years already? <laughs> they were for him because it was very it was brutal. If you weren't funny, we would sit there and mock <laughs> and the tone on In Living Color, I remember I went on a diet and every day, Tommy Davidson, Keenan, all of them, they would play tricks on me. Like, <laughs> I remember one day I was irritable. I was being irritable. So they put, they ordered all this meat and they put it everywhere in my bag. In my <laughs> so when I lifted up my bag, I used to carry this leather satchel, all these sausages and stuff. Oh my God. At the end of the day. I don't recall missing a day of work. I mean, once when I really injured myself, but it was so much fun. We had so much fun before we started shooting that the thought of missing a day at work was unthinkable. So that being said, you better come with it. We were all looking at Jamie. Jamie would pitch stuff. King would be looking like he would eat his food. You know, he did, he was into health food way back then. And he would eat his oatmeal every morning. You're pitching. And then like, I'm an astronaut. And like, but I got like lips on the back of my head, right? So I'm nice in front, but in the back, it's real mean. And I just, I want to do four lip guy. And he- <laughs> no. 
Oh yeah. So he he was Jamie was going through that. He was pitching stuff and just shooting him down. And but finally, when he got in his groove, it was off and running. What were your expectations for what that show could be when you when you got on it? In when you, when it started, yeah. Well, there were a lot. First of all, I was never on the hip show, the cool show. Never. I just, you know, I've always worked, but I was like, you know, you know, Leon, the Negro the writer on, you know, all the rest of the dance was white <laughs> kind of stuff. When In Living Color came on, it hit so hard, so immediately. I mean, the reference point for all of us was a Black Saturday Night Live. As a matter of fact, when everybody got a deal, every Black performer I knew, I've known Chris Rock for forever. We actually auditioned for In Living Color together, but I remember he did a showcase. Eddie Murphy, when Eddie Murphy first blew up, there were rumors that, oh, Eddie wants to do a Black Saturday Night Live. I was like, oh man, could you imagine? So Living Color was actually that. And it hit so hard, so quick. I remember coming down in this green room we had downstairs and everybody was down there. The coolest, hippest, most famous people. So it was a real buzz, man. And after all those years of working, I was finally on this cool show, this hip show. So that was nice. Yeah, I guess Eddie Murphy had already blown up so big in in films by that point. I mean, was there ever a time when he was uh, considering being part of that show? No, but he hovered around. I mean, because of the living color, uh, you know, that, that got me boomerang. And we would talk. And while I was doing Boomerang, we actually did the halftime show. So I remember shooting in New York, Boomerang, and leaving my hotel that morning, that Sunday morning, and flying out to do the live broadcast. And so I'm walking through, it was the old Riga Royal, it's the London now in in New York, I think they call it. Uh, The doormen were like, man, we're going to be watching my driver, <laughs> uh, all the people that worked down there. They said, Everyone knew this was happening. Oh, yeah. It was Gorilla TV. It was Gorilla <laughs> TV. Because back then, people forget, during the halftime show, they had Christian singing groups. They had up with people, ribbon dancers, because it was a captive audience. It wasn't uh, the Rolling Stones and, uh, and Bruce Springsteen back then. Yeah. A year after we took their audience, a year after that, the next performer was Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. And it's never looked back. So that was real pressure. So we talked about it. And Eddie would talk about it. You know, when he, every, every week, he would talk, talk to me about it, uh, you know, how he saw the show and this and that. And that allowed me to do Boomerang, which really changed my career even more. So, Why do you always have to have all the girls, Marcus? Just said a couple seconds ago you didn't care who she went out with. Now you find out it's me and you're flipping, you know? You're being a hypocrite. I don't want to hear that bullshit, man! This is different. Angela is a nice girl. So I can't be with a nice girl? No! Because all you're going to do is dog her out like you do every woman in your life. Okay, tell me this, man. Why Angela? What, she has nice feet? Oh, it has nothing to do with her feet or anything like that, man. I care about this I mean, girl. You don't care about nobody but yourself, man. Yeah, I mean, you've done so much in your career, obviously, and so many films, but it does, looking back at your career, it seems like live performance is just such a huge part of what you do and what you what you must love to do, because you do it so much, starting with theater at the very beginning, that you were, people think of you as this comedian, probably because of In Living Color, but I think it, as just as much of you as a, a theater actor, that's what your training was, and that's really what you've continued to do, including this new uh, play that you did most recently that got the Tony nomination. So can you talk a little bit about what that part of your career means to you and why you continue to 
to really do so much theater? Well, I mean, that's what I was trained to do. Um, I went to the Yale Drama School and our training or the program at that time was to train you as a repertory actor to join a repertory company, a theater company. And in a strange way, out of all the things I've done in Living Color, most fit that bill. We were a repertory of performers. It was all comedy, but one week I would be a smaller part in Jim Carrey's sketch. The next week it would be my turn. So we would rotate and it was really strangely fit that bill. I returned to the theater. It was a way, whenever things would get funky in LA for me and coming back to New York to do a play, it like, it was a way of reinvigorating myself artistically, creatively, and career-wise too, because I was out of sight, out of mind, still working. And it allowed me to do more and more. You know, there was a point in like the 70s, it was pretty much before I got out of school, but you didn't cross mediums. You know, if you had a, a sitcom, you were a star, you weren't going to be a movie star. Of course, you know, John Travolta is probably, I remember when he crossed over and became this movie star, that was unheard of before he did it. And starting with when I got out of school, you could move mediums. I remember one year, like Tim Curry did a Rocky Horror Picture Show. He did, and then he released a punk, like new age, new new wave rock album that charted. That was a career. That's what I do. Michael Keaton did, uh, what was it? Sober, uh, something. It was about a, a recovering drug addict. And the same year he did Beetlejuice. And then he did something else. So in my mind's eye, that was my career model. I want to be here, here, and here. Two, two, three different continents within the entertainment industry. And because I could, and uh, I wanted to do that. So that was always my goal. Yeah. When did stand-up comedy come into it for you? It's funny. You know, I met Robert Townsend when we did Soldier's Story. And he and I shared a honey wagon or a little quarter of a wagon that's yeah, the trailer, yeah. And, right, and where's our dressing room. He told me all about Keenan, Ivory Wayans, and about Damon and how they were gonna form this company and write their own movies and everything. And he introduced me to them. But at that point I would be like, Man, I'm a trained actor, I don't do stand up. That's beneath that's not, you. Yeah, it's beneath you. So in Living Color went on the air. And uh, immediately my agency called me, my theater agent said, listen, we have like 15 colleges and venues that want to book you. And I didn't, (laughs) I had like, I didn't do comedy. You didn't have an act. No. Damon sat down and ran the economics. I was like, well, how much did you really make this weekend? (laughs) And I was like, literally within 30 days, it was like, hello, DC. That's wild because you didn't you didn't have the typical, you know, working your way up through open mics and you were already famous when you really got on stage to do stand up. And you know what that meant? That meant that all the local comics for those first couple of years, they'd all come and they'd watch and they'd see like, what's going on, man? Do you have it? Are you funny? Or is this or or were you a dilettante? You know, or, or were you the famous guy that just came to kind of reap, reap this benefit? I still do it. I mean, not so much now, just given what the, the situation we're in. And I really can't get it up to do Zoom comedy. I, yeah, that's tough. 
want to do that. But it's been a part of my life. And it's been also another aspect of my career, which I use throughout the years to supplement and keep me afloat and alive. Because the one thing about stand-up, when I would go and do stand-up, there was no script. It was all me. There was no... uh, I wasn't encased in someone else's character or uh, any of that. And it was a direct communication with my audience. I got response immediately, um, which served a purpose and really uh, refocused me. And uh, it's something I really appreciate. It was a gift, a gift that I've cherished over the years. How did you do in those the, that first tour that you did? I mean, was it was it hard to uh, to make it work at first? Or did it? <laughs> well, I was really nervous, you know. So I told my agent, I said, "Listen, I don't want a headline," and he said, "Okay, you'll be a featured guest." So I was sandwiched between two more seasoned comics, and I wrote my act out. And I, that whole weekend, it was in Washington D.C., and it was six shows. They sold out nine shows. They sold out 12, 13, 14. It got to the point where I was doing three shows a night. I, I couldn't do any more. And at those first few shows, I would pace in my hotel room and go over my act, pause, ha, 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 keep going, timing. Do I have enough time? And just getting out there. And so there's a guy, Vic Henley, who's passed on now, but he was a white comic from Mississippi. And he was sitting in the dressing room because he, t- he had to go on after me <laughs> so he'd be like, Dad, let me tell you something, man. You're ready, buddy. You're good. I said, no, 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 no. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, it was nerve-wracking, but I got it. Coming up, David reveals why he turned down an opportunity to join the cast of SNL after his success on In Living Color. And he opens up about the uncomfortable experience of tackling the rape charges against his former mentor, Bill Cosby, on The Carmichael Show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. There are so many other conversations you might enjoy, like our 2019 interview with The Carmichael Show's Lil Rel Howery and last year's talk with his Bad Trip co-star, Eric Andre. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love this show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to David Allen Greer. 
I did see that after In Living Color, I believe it was after you got to host SNL twice. What did that mean to you to get that opportunity? And what was the what was the experience like for you? Well, first of all, when I was in college at University of Michigan, SNL, when it came on, I remember literally being in campus dorm parties. They turned the music off. They turned the TV on. We all sat on the floor, on the bed, on the couch and watched SNL. It was huge. I mean... Which, which, which cast are we talking about then? The original cast, man. 75, I think it went on. I went to college from 74 to 78, undergrad. Those are prime years. Yeah, definitely. Bill Murray, all those guys. So Damon uh, hosted, and I and, and they we did a men on film sketch with Chris Farley. So they flew me in. It's like a crossover. It really was. They flew me in. And Damon goes, uh, he was mad because he wanted to do more uh, in Living Color characters. And Saturday Night didn't want to do that. They wanted him to do other stuff. Anyway, we did this. And we came in and they treated me like I was famous, <laughs> you know, and they were so, Lauren, all those guys were so gracious. I was like, wow. And Damon goes, you should really should do this show. And I was sitting in his dressing room. I go, why? Because I thought for sure he'd go, because, you know, artistically, creatively, it's a way to, no, he goes, because they let you keep the clothes. And I was like, <laughs> all right. So I, you know, they asked me to host I think I did Jumanji or something like that. And it went over so great. It was so awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, David Allen Greer. Saturday Night Live. I'm telling you, you guys probably know me from In Living Color. I was the uh, black guy. <laughs> they asked me to come back. They actually asked me four or five times, but usually I was the go-to guy. So it was like uh, somebody fell through. They would call me and ask me, but usually, I, you know, I had a, a gig. It would be Wednesday. I'd be like, oh, you guys got to give me... You were the backup SNL host. Exactly. <laughs> if the Williams sisters fall out, David, um, <laughs> you're in. You know, and so I'd be like, I can't do it. And then NBC came and they offered me a spot in, uh, on uh, SNL. But, you know, at that point, I had done... When, when was this? This was after Living Color. I had hosted twice and both the performances, you know, with Lauren from the reviews on down, it went really, really, really well. And they said, will you join the cast? But for me, it was like, I, you know, when you're a host, you call all the shots. So I said, I can't be in front of the cast. And then six months later, I'm behind the cast. Like, Isn't that the dude that was hosting like nine months ago? You know, and also, I wonder if that's even ever happened. If any hosts have then later joined the cast. I don't think so. <laughs> but, but also after doing In Living Color, I wanted to do a different kind of show. I did not do another, you know. Thing like that but so i didn't do it but uh i still go and see people on snl and visit and lauren and those guys are so gracious and i remember after the first uh hosting he, he, 
my first time hosting, Lauren called me in his office and he said, David, I want you to think of SNL like your second home. It's a lot like what we, uh, our relationship that we had with um, Steve Martin or, or Tom Hanks. And, you know, inside, I'm, my brain's exploding. And after that, I never heard from Lauren. <laughs> so, so it all worked out. But in the moment, in the moment, he was he was very. Well, maybe he, maybe he didn't like that you turned him down on uh, being no, part of the cast. We're still cool. We're great. But uh, I, I do remember that. I, was just, I would I would say there's probably only a, a small handful of people who have ever turned that show down. Yeah. Well, I couldn't. I would literally was doing a job. I can't quit to go do SNL and come back. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. You you talk about, you know, turning that show down. Um, you, you've you talked about before these sort of wrong turns in your career or decisions that maybe you, you made that you wouldn't have, that you kind of regret or something. But thinking about, you know, Ace Ventura or even something like, uh, you know, Seinfeld, which I know you auditioned for, the role of George, and then you, not that they offered it to you, but that you just didn't really get that it was going to be a big thing. Oh, it's not Tracy Ullman. I remember auditioning reading with Tracy Ullman, I was like, oh my God, who's going to watch this show? I, well, I auditioned to be one of the company when, when she did her variety show, you know, that first show. And, and, you know, we had some sketches that they read and I was like, oh boy, he's just flat. This isn't going to work. No, it's not going to work. So I became the barometer. Whatever I said, do the opposite. Oh, that, that's what, that's the lesson you took from that? Of course. Because the only reason I did in Living Color was... You know, it was at a point in my career where I was really known to casting directors. I'd done a few pilots. Uh, and that year was at the height of that system. Like, uh, I must have auditioned for over 20 pilots. It got to the point where it was like, well, we're looking for an um, albino little person. But David can read. You never know. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. So it was like that. And, and Living Color was always there. I knew that would be the most fun, but they weren't going to pay me the same. My agents, my I don't think I even had a manager then. They didn't want me to do In Living Color. They were like, you're going to be crabs in a barrel. Just one of the company. Here, you're playing Dion. He's the, 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 the television repairman. And it's, you know, <laughs> Jim Burroughs and the Charles Brothers, you know, that kind of stuff. So I finally, out of frustration, you know, I hadn't booked a pilot. I just said, let me do In Living Color because I knew... It would be the most fun. I never thought it would get picked up because it was too wild. I just never thought a network is ever going to put this on. There's no Netflix back then. Um, so I just did it and it, everything came together. Have you ever talked to to Jim Carrey about the whole uh, Ace Ventura thing and how you uh, how you turned it down before it became oh, his, his breakout thing? Well, he knew. I mean, you know, uh, Ace Ventura was a script that had been around for years. So... Uh, I know when they came to me, they were thinking, Rob, uh, who's the guy who was on SNL? Oh, Rob Schneider, right? Rob Schneider. They, they talked about, you know, we'll team you with Rob Schneider. You guys can, you know, do this thing. It was a terrible script. The reason why Jim took it is because they said, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. And that sounded good to him. Of course. They gave him artistic freedom. You know, I didn't think longitudinally like that. I was like, I need this cake to be done it's so, kind of like the, the theater uh you more of a, a theater mentality i guess is like believe in the the play the play has to be good oh for me at that time i just was too nervous i just no and and so that's why jim took it he brought in his guys a couple guys from in living color they rewrote it and fashioned it just to him and it took off running 
the other show that I wanted to touch on with you um, is the Carmichael show, which was was one of my favorites. And it's just, uh, I think this really wonderful show that was kind of beloved by so many people, but kind of underappreciated by maybe mm-hmm. the, net, the network uh, NBC that was putting it out. How do you, uh, how do you think about your, your time uh, spent on that show and, and working with uh, Gerard Carmichael, especially as a, uh, as a creator? Well, I met Gerard when we were all performing at, the Montreal Comedy Festival, way before. That's the first time I saw him. I think I saw him around LA. And Gerard always had a unique point of view. He was not like any other Black comic, you know, there. Very unique voice. And if you've ever been to the Montreal Comedy Festival, they do these little shows within shows. So I was hosting, you know, it was, I don't know, the Midnight Ethnic Show. So it was a <laughs> But, oh, yeah, but, uh, of Black comics or one or two white folks that were, you know, Black by proxy. And Gerard was on the show. So uh, that's when I really saw him stretch out and perform. And so we were always cordial with each other. I'd heard that he'd gotten a deal with NBC and uh, they sent me the script. And I was already a fan. I read this uh, script and I went in and I really wanted to do it. And I saw Loretta coming out. Loretta Devine, who played live as I was going in. And Loretta and I did Dream Girls on Broadway. <laughs> so we were already, I'd known her for like 35 years. We never had sex. We were good <laughs> friends. We were married, basically. <laughs> so it's perfect. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I remember Loretta goes, Oh, David, they'll like you. They're gonna like you a lot. <laughs> so I went in, you know, got this role. And it's funny, Gerard, that character was the best role I had, I've had in my career, I think, on TV. Because it literally, it was written and constructed and they did it. You know, it wasn't like me pounding on the door going, I demand, I need, I have to have. They did it. Uh, in which it would be over the top laughter and within five minutes, tears, crying. The emotional arc of uh, his dad and my relating to Gerard on the show within our characters was amazing. And they gave me that. And so it was awesome. It was really awesome to play. And it was awesome to work, you know, work with Gerard. I love Gerard so much. It seems like the kind of show where when you got the, the new script for the for the week, you'd be looking to see, you know, what is the uh, what's the hot button thing that we're dealing with this week that's going to cause some some problem for me or some controversy. <laughs> Did you ever uh, worry about any of the oh, yeah. topics you that got the, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would go home many night going, all right. <laughs> if you if you say so. <laughs> well, no, I would just be like, your show, brother. But I remember we did the porn episode. So so every time we read it, we'd read the pilot and I'd be like, Gerard. And he'd go, well, actually, this is based on my life. You know, I did find my dad had this gun. And I was like, okay. Then he found out he had a half-brother across town. I was like, Gerard. Actually, this, yeah. I read <laughs> it all, it's all real. So we got to the porn episode and he told me the time that he found his father's porn stash. And I'm like, <laughs> just tell me now. What else happened? Yeah. Did your father <laughs> kill somebody? You know, like, <laughs> where yeah. is this going? <laughs> yeah. So that was really the that was really the conversation. And uh, I admired Gerard for because I'd been in that position and people have you have no idea how much pressure you're under when you get notes from the studio from the network, 
from your agents, your manager, your lawyer. And still you have to be a leader. You have to keep your cool and captain the ship. And I always admired Gerard's poise and leadership in those moments. He never really brought any of that stuff to set and a lesser man would have. It did make me wonder what that show would have been like if it had been on a Netflix or some other, you know, streamer where they maybe got more attention and got more, you know, it was sort of easier for people to find because they kept moving it around. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, and it's funny, the critics loved us, but at one point, I remember the president of NBC goes, we we view the Carmichael show like, it's like it is our very own limited series on a premium network. And my response was, yeah, but we're not on a premium network. <laughs> you should have told us when we signed the contract that you were going to renew us. You're going to keep us off the air one time for 11 months and then order nine episodes or six episodes. And yet we were just stuck there, you know? So at the end, it, it, it had, I just feel like, you know, it's like they kept, they kept putting more limits on. They're like, yeah, we'll bring you back if, if you hop on one foot, if you only don't go off the front porch, if you only eat this that we feed you, you know? So finally it just couldn't go on. You know, but we'd we'd done it. At least we got on and we did a few episodes, which was good. Um, the episode that really stood out to me, and I think got a lot, lot of attention as well, is the, uh, the the episode that really dealt with the Bill Cosby stuff head on. And I'm wondering what that was like for you, because I know you've you have described him as a sort of you know mentor to you back in the day, and someone who you know you you worked with to some degree over the years. So what what is it like for you to to know him like that, and then have to really take on this, you know, horrible stuff in the, in the episode? Um, it was something, you know, I've always been really honest, you know, because I felt like it was necessary. I didn't have to tell people that he was a mentor to me before, because before you knew <laughs> was a pre- prelude to discussing these allegations. And that was coupled with, yes, he was, but I also, uh, you know, I don't think he was innocent. So so that's why I talked about it. And I said, you know, I'm just telling you this. Just like on if your show goes, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, Google at the end of the at the end of the podcast, by the way, there for disclosure, Google is one of our sponsors. <laughs> that's why I said it. I said, yeah, he was. So I do. Um, and also I feel like from so there's some people that applaud what I'm my point of view. A lot of people don't, but I'm just telling you my truth, man. I'm just telling you, you know, that's what I think. But so I, again, I left it. I, I was really cognizant on the Carmichael show. I wanted to support Gerard. So it was never a relationship of you can't do that. Uh, I won't allow you to. I don't want to. No, it's his show, man. It's his show. I mean, if I ever felt like we did something in which I could not abide, I couldn't do this, I would have told him, but it just never happened like that. So. You know, Maxine, there's something in this country called innocent until proven guilty. Oh, you really think that there's a chance he's innocent? No, I know he is innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> but that is the foundation of our justice system. I mean, isn't that what you would want if you were accused of something, or do you want the Internet to decide? Don't get me wrong. If Bill Cosby is tried and convicted during the show, all you got to do is text me, and I promise you I will storm right out. And I also think the Bill Cosby original allegations were way before Me Too. And I feel like the way we are here today, 
there has been there have been so many conversations unfortunately about so many people in power either well known or just in power that have been brought down by similar allegations so but you have to understand at the time there this was new and rare and stood out oh, yeah yeah it really was before the, the reckoning. Oh yeah. Before Harvey Weinstein, before I can go on. I mean, you know, like a lot, a lot of dudes before Louis CK, before this. As we said, you know, you've done so much in your career. Uh, are there things that you really want to do that you haven't gotten the opportunity to do that you, that you think about as like, this is something that I, I really want to try and go accomplish? Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing on my bucket list, I'd love to get a really great dramatic role in a movie. That would be cool. I mean, I've done it, but it's been a while, been a while. So yeah, yeah, there could be a whole nother uh, phase of your career as a, yes, (laughs) Yes. I want to do a movie like uh, Papillon prisoners stuck on devil's island or some you know a lot of close-ups weird lighting <laughs> monologues you know that kind of stuff well who's that dude robert what's his butt in jaws is it oh, uh, robert shaw <laughs> robert shaw all those men being attacked by sharks eaten <laughs> as we would be rescued yeah, that yes, kind of great. So this show is called The Last Laugh. Um, I want to end with the first laugh. And by that, I mean, who's the first comedian that you can remember really making you laugh as a, as a kid? Without a doubt, Richard Pryor. I remember in my living room, we put the TV in the living room on certain occasions, you know. And I remember seeing Richard Pryor on the Ed Sullivan show. Now, first of all, you have to understand, comedy is generational. So before that, people would come on like Georgie Jessel. I remember I would watch him as a kid. He came out in this kind of uniform and he'd say, he's the toastmaster of comedy. And I would just look at him with a bewildered look on my face. Like, why do people consider this individual Sophie Tucker? Sophie Tucker? Yeah. Comics that you would see older, mostly white. You just um, didn't didn't get it, didn't didn't no, connect to like you. a lot of young kids, you're like, why is this funny? You know, when you're <laughs> young, you want to laugh with your adults, but explain the joke. I don't get it. Richard Pryor came on and it was the first time where I went, wow, okay, I love this guy. Instantly fascinated. And that was at a time before Richard Pryor really, really found his voice voice. You know what I mean? But for me, that has always been my comedy idol of idols. There were other Black comics. Uh, George Kirby. He was an old school Vegas dude, but I loved George Kirby. Who else was another one? He was in The Watermelon Man. I can't think of his name right now, but Richard Pryor would be the guy. It's a great one. Well, thank you uh, so much for doing this. Um, it's really been a pleasure talking to you and uh, been a fan of yours for so long. So so this was uh, this was really fun. Thanks, man. It was great talking to you too, man. Thank you so much to David Allen Greer for that incredible conversation. You can stream his new show with Jamie Foxx, Dad, Stop Embarrassing Me, right now on Netflix. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. 
The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.